came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Saturday the 12th of January 2019 and welcome to our second holiday edition where we look back at our most popular episodes in the previous year and combine a few of them into a single episode. In this case we're looking at astrophotography and our two most popular astrophotography episodes for this year were with astrophotographer Doug Ingram and our regular contributor, Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who's a toxicologist and pharmacologist from Adelaide University, and he's also an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer. Enjoy. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, thanks, Ian. Now, about 12 months ago, in episode 39, we did a feature episode with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrove. For those new to Astrophys, Ian is a senior lecturer in pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, a 2017 unsung hero of Science Communication Award winner, the author of Southern Skywatch, the author of his comprehensive astro blog, the iTelescope blog, and his blog at The Conversation. So today we're doing another special episode with Ian. Now this is a double episode for amateur astronomers and keen observers. First, Ian will tell us how we can take stunning astrophotography images, even if you don't own high-end instruments. And then he'll give us his usual update, What's Up Doc? Where he tells us what to look for in the evening, night and morning skies. So, hey Ian, how are you doing? And what do you have for us in this episode? I have a variety of things in this episode. When we think about stunning images of the night sky, we think of things that come out of the Hubble Space Telescope or similar telescopes big-end professional telescopes, if you've ever seen them. They're really amazing images of the Orion Nebula. These are truly stunning images. But for the amateur who has modest equipment, taking images can be a little bit more tricky. What we see through the telescope and what we can capture with our various cameras and images are maybe uh, less than uh, amazing. But you can still do quite a lot. One of the things that you need to think about is what are you looking for? Do you want to look for planetary action? Are you looking for deep sky objects? And people tend to ignore the moon. 
But the moon is a constant source of, of wonder. Every time you take an image, it will be slightly different. The moon will be in slightly differently vibrated. You can catch the shadows of the craters as the sun rises on them. There's also the famous lunar X structure, which can only be caught at certain times. So there's a range of things that you can catch on the moon with only very modest equipment. Now, I'm going to assume that most people have a telescope of some sort, and that's the absolute minimum you need is a modest-sized telescope. If you have a clock drive of some sort that is able to drive the telescope across the heavens, then that makes it easier. One of the big problems with taking photographs through telescopes is, of course, that the more you magnify the image, the more you magnify the effect of the Earth rotating. So if you stick your telescope without a motor drive and point it at something like the moon or any bright star or planet under light magnification, pretty much stays where it is. The more you magnify, the sooner it moves out of your field of view. So taking photographs is going to be a little bit more tricky. If you have a clock drive, of course, you can drive your telescope so that it follows the motion of the stars and planets and so that the image stays fairly firmly in the middle of your eyepiece. But even if you don't have uh, time drive, you can still do interesting things. And this is where things that you don't think of come into. The first thing we need to think of is having a good star map. A lot of the really interesting things you can take photographs of the sky with. When planets come very close to other interesting objects, some of the most spectacular images, one that I was reminded of only last night, was the occultation of Saturn we saw here in Australia. And by catching the approach of Saturn to the moon and then having Saturn go behind the moon, it's something that can be captured with relatively simple equipment. And by knowing when it's going to happen and looking for it, you can catch something that's really stunning. Part of getting a stunning image is thinking about what it is you want to take. It's all very well to have a bright planet in the middle of your telescope, and that's really nice. At the moment, there's a whole range of interesting things that are happening where you don't even need a huge magnification. Saturn and the globular cluster M22. M22 is a very bright globular cluster, a magnificent telescopic piece, and Saturn's quite close to it. By juggling it around, you can get a reasonable magnification of Saturn and the cluster together, and so you have a very beautiful composition without having to have an enormous telescope and enormous magnification. Yep. So you need a good astronomy program where you can look out for close approaches of bright planets to interesting objects, other uh, clusters, other planets. So if you've got a good piece of astronomy software so you can work out where bright objects are going to be close together or when bright planets will be occulted by the moon, this is very worrying. So you have to plan reasonably far ahead to get this. For example, the most stunning image I've seen recently was an image of a partial eclipse of the sun. Yep. Unlike a full solar eclipse, where all of the sun is behind the moon in an annulunar eclipse, you have a thin rim of sun around the moon. Yep. So planning is important. At the moment, for example, Jupiter is very close to uh, Wibbly. That's really interesting to a telescope. It's not, it's not a Hubble image, gorgeous colours everywhere, 
but you'll have the beautiful Jupiter, the, the bright Galilean moons, and a beautiful double star all in the same field. What about stacking software? For stacking, I use two main pieces of software. I use Deep Sky Stacker for stars and um, nebula, and I use Registacks for planets. The reason for this is they have different algorithms for tracking their objects, and Registacks is designed for picking up multiple features and allowing the features to be overlaid, and so that um, if you've taken, say, multiple images or if you take a video, what I do for my planetary imaging is I take short videos of the planets because they're, going, they're moving across my eyepiece field of view, even on my big telescope, which has a tracking drive on it because it's tracking only in one direction and because my polar alignment isn't perfect, it tends to drift a little bit away from the equatorial tracking. So I use Registrax to overlay the images and uh, you get some beautiful effects. But even in my little four-inch telescope, by taking a video of the planet that I'm following, uh, even though it's not tracking and the planet's moving across the eyepiece, the video allows me to create lots and lots of frames which then get snapped in uh, Registrax. And so you get some fantastic images of Jupiter and its moons, Saturn's never been quite as successful for me on the 4-inch, but they've got a lot of issues with um, turbulence. I've got some beautiful images of the moon, and I've made uh, a number of lunar mosaics at different scales uh, through the use of Registacks. Registacks is very, very good. Deep Sky Stacker has been very useful to me too. I tend to use it on images that I've taken uh, very, when I'm just taking photographs of the sky, quite often I take multiple images of, of, say, Scorpio. I want to be able to create some really deep images of Scorpio and all the constellations, all the clusters around it. I take six, 15 second exposures. That's enough to um, capture the images without them uh, drifting too much. And then I stack them in Deep Sky Stacker. I can bring out huge amounts of detail around Scorpius, and, and you have this rather large-scale image, especially around uh, Sagittarius with the with the centre of our galaxy there. You can create truly gorgeous images with a very simple camera, taking images of no more than 15 seconds duration and uh, stacking them with Deep Sky Stacker. I, I also use it for when I'm doing stacking images of the International Space Station. The good thing about Deep Sky Stacker is it can account for Earth's rotation. If you use something like Image J, for example, which is another program which I use quite a bit, you'll find that it can't handle the fact that the sky is rotating. So you'll get some smearing of the images in Image J. For a number of short exposures, it's really good. But if you've got lots of exposures, uh, the field rotation becomes really obvious. So Deep Sky Stacker, I found to be very, very, very good. Also, if I'm taking images with remote telescopes, I can use that to, to um, account for uh, some of the field rotation you see uh, when you're taking images at different times because it, typically um, the multiple short images stack quite nicely under uh, normal circumstances. If you're taking images a couple of nights apart, you'll find Deep Sky Stacker can deal with it because you never, never can take it at exactly the same time. There'll always be that little bit of field rotation. 
so you can play with that. So software is really important. Now, I've only mentioned that these two, they're the ones that I have lots of experience with, but you'll find there's a number of other stackers out there which will uh, give you a, a nice effect. But again, these Sky Stacker and Registacks are both free and well supported. You can easily play with them and get some, uh, some good effects. Another piece of software is image manipulation software. And there's a range of ones you can use. I use ImageJ, which is a free piece of software from the National Institutes of Health. It's designed to do lots of things. So I've used it at work for tracking Western blots. I use it at home for dealing with astronomy images. It's, it also handles uh, one of the major formats that you have coming out of a telescope is the bits format. And so we can handle bits format. But it's also good for doing a range of things like stacking, animation, playing around with the image, try and sharpen and darken it. Another program I use is the GIMP, a very nice little image manipulation program. Quite often you need to sharpen or increase contrast or stack images, and the GIMP's very good for that. It's completely free. Photoshop, of course, is the industry standard, and it has so many bells and whistles and buttons that you can't even begin to describe it. But Photoshop costs money. So for those of you who are into low-cost image manipulation, the GIMP and ImageJ will do 99.9% of the things that you really that you want to do. And for really advanced people, Photoshop is probably the way to go. Also, PixInsight, which is a almost dedicated astrophotography program, again, it costs, really want to take your images a little bit further than getting uh, Photoshop or Pixel Insight is that that's, it, it'll be worth your while. But when you're learning, practice on the free ones first. <laughs> and there's some people I think might over-process their images. I've seen some images that have been over-processed in Photoshop and Lightroom as well. What's your advice on the level of processing to take, Ian? My advice is to use as little as possible. Uh, my major processing is to increase the contrast so you can see dimmer elements, especially for processing for Mars. You're trying to make the dark regions come out from the lighter regions. As soon as it looks like you've got little lines around your images, are you going too far? For colours, I'm not a good person to talk to about colours because I'm red green colourblind. <laughs> and every time I try and do serious colour imaging, I end up with a garish nightmare of psychedelic colours. But my advice is if your colours start leaping out at you and banging on your eyeballs, you've gone too far. Try for, try for something a little muted. Uh, the colours will speak for themselves. Yep. Um, so we've dealt with images for processing, we've dealt with programs for planning, we've dealt with dealing with the fact that if you don't have a mode drive for your telescope, your images will drift. And the point of view of, of doing something simple, start off with the simplest possible process. You, if you have a simple telescope without a drive, you work with that, and you can add on things later. Get used to your telescope get used to your imaging system. You know, you maybe want to do all these really fantastic things, but 
Try the simple stuff first, and you'll find it's quite an enjoying journey. I spent most of my early imaging of the moon, and like I said, the moon is vastly underappreciated, and you could, but you can do all sorts of wonderful things with moon images, make giant mosaics, do animations of sunrise on the moon, pick out areas to look at in greater depth, all of these things, and the moon will always reward you, be it in in-depth images of the uh, cratered poles or watching it, a, a lunar halo or uh, watching an eclipse. All of these things will repay you immensely. And you get to, and, and the image, kind of imaging you will do for a lunar eclipse, for example, will be different to the kind of imaging you will do for in-depth exploration of craters. So again, think about what you want to achieve. There's so many different things you, you can achieve with astronomical objects when you think about what you can see. So start off with something really simple with the moon. Most other things, the moon is a good thing to practice on because you can you get a feel for your telescope of what are its limitations, what's its capabilities, and the more you image with the moon, the more you get a feel for the processing power of your imaging systems. And we're going to talk cameras in a moment because after all, it's, it's one, one thing to have a telescope uh, and all this fancy software, but you've got to be able to take photographs in the first place. So I think when I initially talked about this, I talked about camera adapters, uh, where you could uh, take a simple point-and-shoot camera, and with the camera adapters, uh, whack it on your uh, telescope uh, and take photographs to your heart's content. In that time... Mobile phone cameras have zoomed ahead. I also want to talk uh, then about uh, using a mobile phone camera by simply holding it up to your uh, your eyepiece and taking a shot. But now you can get adapters for mobile phones. You can get specific adapters for the iPhone. There's now a whole range of adapters for telescopes for different kinds of phones. There's a very simple one you can get from Australian Geographic. For those of us in Australia, for those overseas, you may find it a little bit hard to locate these things, but it's basically uh, a, a very lightweight, massive suction caps which you stick on the back of your mobile phone uh, with a uh, eyepiece adapter, and then you just uh, screw it. Uh, you locate where your, your eyepiece hole is, and you screw it on, and bombs your uncle. There's other more complicated ones where. You've probably seen the adapters where you can put your mobile phone on a tripod. They're very similar to them where you, where you can have a quite strong holder which can then screw on to an adapter. So you have a whole range of simple ones and highly complex ones. The good advantage of uh, the telescope mobile phone adapters uh, with the modern mobile phones is it makes it a lot easier to show people what you're doing. <laughs> it's, it's really... Uh, one of the joys of uh, having a telescope is showing other people what you can see through them. And, and these things make it so much easier. If you've got a, a simple point with camera like mine, the display image on the back of the camera is pretty shoddy, but the actual image it takes is really good. Whereas the mobile phone, phone cameras, you can see high quality displays directly in front of you. And that's really something. So. With the level and quality of the uh, mobile phones, you can move a lot of your imaging, uh, simple imaging, to uh, mobile phones. And so, again, 
the problem, part of the problem with mobile phones is that you may have to fiddle around with the exposure characteristics. The different phones have, have different capabilities. Uh, if you have a iPhone, for example, it's got bells and whistles coming off, but I have a, an Android phone and if you just stick it on, on the uh, telescope and stick it on the moon, it'll be overexposed and um, may not necessarily want to focus. Big problem with, with many mobile phones is they want to autofocus and if you're trying for stars, the autofocus uh, may just try and try and try and not focus. Some of them will have a, a landscape mode which will set the focus at infinity, use that. And you can also adjust the white balance, I can adjust the exposure times, which is really good. The problem with my point-and-click camera is I've got a range of exposure times, but it's not a, bit a wide enough range. So if I want to take some long-term deep-sky exposures, I'm pretty much stuck with 15 uh, seconds, which is convenient because of the amount of time it takes to for the sky to rotate. I'm just taking dual pictures, but if I've got the telescope uh, tracking on, uh, I'd like to be able to take longer uh, exposures than 15 seconds. Whereas with the uh, the mobile phone, I can go down to very, very tiny fractions of a second. With stacking, it's not too much of a problem. You just take lots and lots of images. And with burst mode on the mobile phones, you're able to take a large number of, of images, uh, one after the other. Well, Ian, they say that science is about standing on the shoulders of giants and a lot of people listening to this have probably seen some wonderful photos or images taken by people like Damien Peach and Sean Duran or Doran who plug into some of the satellites that are available. They don't have a lot of equipment themselves but they appear to be able to grab images from various satellites and then process them and come up with some amazing images. Can you tell us about that? There's an enormous number of spacecraft out there which have their outputs readily available to the public. Probably the most amazing ones uh, at the moment is JunoCam. JunoCam is a, a medium-resolution camera that's on the Juno spacecraft so every time Juno makes a pass of Jupiter, as well as the high-quality science-grade images that are coming out, you also have JunoCam. And JunoCam is interesting not only because it makes all its images available to amateurs straight away, so you're able to download them, assemble them, play with them, and truly incredible photographs of what's going on in, in Juno. And there's so many images that are... Um, Almost everyone can, can uh, be developing their own personalised shot of Jupiter. And as well as Juno uh, taking all these images, uh, they uh, get input from the public. So the public can say what they would like to see imaged. So if you go to the JunoCam website, you simply type in JunoCam into your favourite web browser and it will take you to the JunoCam community where amateurs can vote for what they want JunoCam to look at. So JunoCam's probably the best highly colourful, fantastic images. Another one is the Mars VMC camera. Now, the Mars VMC camera, it's basically a webcam, but it was a webcam that was put on Mars Express to monitor the separation of the big lander. 
but it's still there and still taking photographs of Mars and, and they've made the archive of the images open to everybody. So you can download all the raw images and you can make create your own images of Mars and you can pull out great shots of Mars. They're relatively small images, basically webcam. I've got an image of one of the volcanoes on Mars uh, and also the, some of the uh, volcano complexes. And because the Mars Express is continually changing its orbit as it's going around Mars in order to image different things, you'll get different aspects and angles of Mars. So uh, Mars, Mars DMC webcam is another uh, place where you can get some really nice images. And there's still lots and lots of, of raw images on the Cassini site too. So if you go to the Cassini site, there's a huge uh, number of raw images there which you can download and assemble uh, into planetary imaging as well. The Rosetta mission, there's a bunch of, of images that you can get a hold of through the Rosetta mission if you're interested in, in uh, looking at what's going on on the comet. In fact, uh, about a month ago, a series of images was, uh, was uh, released by an amateur and uh, pulled down a, a bunch of the latest high-quality uh, images that have been released by the ESA and made them into an animation. And it's this brilliant animation of what's basically a snowstorm on a, on a comet. Uh, so you get to see the dust particles flying around uh, at the same time as in the background, you can see the, I think it's the Beehive Cluster uh, going past as the comet rotates. Uh, so you, it's the most amazing thing. And there's lots and lots of images that are still there that require a bit of patience, a bit of thought to pull out and pull out some really interesting things. And so they're, they're quite high detail. The Jupiter and Cassini images uh, are very high detail. Uh, the Mars VMC, not so much high detail, but I'm looking at a uh, image of uh, Ballas Marinensis right now, uh, taken from the VMC camera, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So there's lots of things you can do with satellite images. My favourite satellite image after that is the stereo spacecraft. Now, I'm familiar with the stereo spacecraft. The stereo spacecraft, in case anyone doesn't remember, were a pair of spacecraft that were launched in order to take stereo images of the solar corona and to understand the evolution of coronal mass ejections and other solar wind phenomena. Then amateurs discovered you could find comets in them. And so there's a little cottage image industry amongst amateur comet people to search for comets in stereo images, and I've got quite a few on my website. The stereo images aren't that stunning in turn because it's basically, uh, again, uh, it's a, it's, it has a resolution of a fairly good set of binoculars, but if you play with the images, you can get some quite nice effects. Uh, very recently, the, the centre of the Milky Way drifted past the stereo images, and so you can pick up quite a bit of detail there in the stereo images. But that's not all. But you can pick up a lot of other things. Variable stars. You can pick up variable stars in the stereo images, so you can do citizen science on variable stars. It requires a little bit of, uh, of uh, playing around to be able to do accurate magnitude uh, estimates on stars. 
sites, you can do that with, uh, with appropriate reference size. Because of the rate at which it drifts, the long period variables are not so useful, but you're, uh, you can pick up things like the algal style variables. I've picked up uh, our toroid uh, in the stereo images, and it, it, it's really quite <laughs> amazing watching it uh, flash on and off as it passes through the field of view. Uh, also, Nova, um, if, uh, by carefully looking at the images, you might be able to discover uh, Nova, maybe even a supernova. The um, brightness, the, the brightest images, or star images, are greatly overexposed, but you can go down to about magnitude 13 uh, in the stereo images, which allows you to pick up um, some uh, Nova quite easily. So variable stars, Nova. Um, so stereo, comets, beautiful images of comets. Uh, you can look at the centre of the galaxy quite easily and pick up variable stars and possibly even find a Nova or two. So a range of spacecraft out there that you can use to find things and produce beautiful images and, and even do some citizen science. So even if you don't have a telescope, you can use these, uh, these free spacecraft images to uh, satisfy your, uh, your scientific and astronomical curiosity. Fantastic, Ian. Hello, Doug. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with astrophotographer Doug Ingram. So you've been in the game and done that transition from chemical to digital photography. And now, we know a lot of people have got DSLR cameras gathering a bit of dust at home. Let's do a hypothetical shoot now, Doug. Can you tell us how to plan a night shoot to capture the Milky Way? Yes, certainly. Well, the number one thing is you have to be aware of the moon cycle. You don't want to be out trying to take photos of stars and faint nebula and all of the glory of the Milky Way when there's a first quarter through to third quarter moon, and particularly a full moon. I have a lot of people say to me, oh, I saw the full moon last night and I knew that you'd probably be out taking photos. Well, <laughs> that's about the worst time to do it unless you've set out to take photos of the full moon. So you become familiar with the lunar cycle. And you can, when I was a kid, you did that from the easy-to-see calendar that was always on the wall at home. It had the moon phases on it. But now there are apps galore. There are websites. The uh, timeanddate.com is a good one to check to see how the, the moon's going. You also need to know where the Milky Way is going to be in the sky at what time of night. And just as the, the sun and the moon rise and set each day, or appear to rise and set, so too do the stars through the night. So it's important to know where the Milky Way is, where it's going to be in the sky, when you go out, if you go out, you know, not long after dark, or where it's going to be at midnight or in the wee small hours. And of course, that position changes throughout the year. So you realise you have to learn quite a bit, but the learning curve is worth the effort because even if you don't take photos, you stand out there and see what's there with the naked eye. All the wonderful things that you can see in dark skies, you go, yeah, that was worth the effort. So the first thing is the moon. The second thing is to know where the Milky Way and other objects are going to be located. 
And you'd need to know whether you can get access to a place you intend to shoot from. I spend a lot of time looking over maps and I guess these days Google Earth thinking, okay, that looks like a good location. There's an abandoned farmhouse there or there's a windmill nearby and I'd love to shoot the Milky Way with that in the background. But then you get there and find out that the road is a private road which wasn't shown on the map and, and you can't get in anyway. Moon, Milky Way, location, they're all important. Another thing you have to plan around is the weather and that's the least predictable. We're pretty good at forecasting the weather these days apparently but I've had plenty of times where I've checked the satellite photos online from the Japanese satellite that's parked over Australia. I've checked apps that have told me what the cloud's going to be, and I've driven sometimes hundreds of kilometres to turn up to a spot and it's cloud. And, of course, the other thing would be if you're planning a shoot, make sure your gear is working, that your batteries are charged, that you have at least one spare memory card with you that you have a torch so that you can see when you're setting up, and particularly that you have a red cover to go over the torch so you don't ruin your night vision. I would say they're the main point, but happy to give you any others if that doesn't cover it for you. Fantastic, Doug. Now, your Milky Way shots are fantastic, but what Thank other you. targets are good targets? Are the Magellanic Clouds are good things to shoot? Absolutely. We're very spoiled here in the Southern Hemisphere. Not only we are a long way from a lot of the craziness in the Northern Hemisphere, but we have the centre of the Milky Way out passes overhead through the winter months. We have the Magellanic Clouds to photograph as well. And a great thing about the large and small Magellanic Clouds is they're pretty much visible all year round, of course with the moon permitting, unless you have a mountain or something on your horizon at the wrong time of year. They're a favourite target of mine. In fact, I was out last Friday night. I drove a couple of hundred k's from Sydney, got some Milky Way shots, but spent quite a bit of time photographing the large Magellanic cloud because I just find it so beautiful and entrancing. The moon, if you're you know, either trying to shoot a very thin moon or a full moon, and there seems to be a bit of an unofficial competition among astrophotographers to see who can shoot the thinnest moon. And I think the the thinnest one I've seen is from Ian Griffin, who's the director of the Otago Museum in New Zealand. Uh, he posts on Twitter regularly, and he shot the moon recently, which was only 2% illuminated. It was less than 24 hours after the new moons. That's a good thing. My favourite full moon shot of mine was one I shot at Cronulla Beach, near where I live. It was one of the super moons. And I had a flight tracker app, and I could see that the Air ambulance was coming in on the flight path to land at Sydney Airport, and I managed to photograph the air ambulance plane right in front of the full moon. And you can even see an exhaust plume from the, the plane on the photo. Yeah, into the summer months, Orion is a favourite, not just of myself, but of lots of photographers, because it's a, a beautiful little arrangement of stars and that asterism of. The saucepan, as I've known it since I was five years old, is great. You can pick up, even with a simple shot with the most basic lens that comes with a camera, you can pick up the nebulosity in the handle of the saucepan, which is, of course, M42, the Orion Nebula. And a great shot to go for is to get Orion and the Pleiades and the Hyades all in one shot. I think one other thing to mention, and it's a challenge the further south you live in Australia, is M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. It 
where I live or the places I travel to to photograph, it rarely gets more than 14 degrees above the northern horizon. So that one's always a challenge, but I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, all of those DSLRs out there, they're capable of fabulous shots of a night sky. But you were hinting at this before. What other equipment can make our shoot more effective? Can you give us some basic tips on lenses or tripods and Wi-Fi cable releases? What sort of torches? What other essential equipment can people bolt on to their DSLR? Certainly. Yeah, well, the tripod's a must. You've got to have something to mount the camera on. And don't care how sturdy your hands are, you can't shoot a five a 30-second long exposure just holding your camera in your hands. Uh, you can try holding your breath, but it doesn't work. Uh, so a tripod is essential. And, and whatever sort of photography you're interested in, a tripod is probably one of the first items you buy after you buy your camera. Yep. I did see a photo a few years back from someone in the US who put his camera on top of his car and while he was getting something else out, and he actually bumped the shutter button. And when he pulled the memory card out at home, he'd actually taken a photograph of the Andromeda Galaxy because it was straight overhead at the time. But even he recommended getting a tripod instead of using the roof of your car. And lenses, of course, every camera comes with a lens. And most digital SLRs that you buy, they come with what's referred to as a kit lens, which is usually the cheapest but most effective lens that a manufacturer can bundle in with it. They often come with a focal range from 18 to 55 millimetres. They're fine. Most people want to run off and buy some new lenses straight away, and that's great if you have the money, but I believe in learning with the equipment that you have and being able to get the most out of it before you move on to the next thing. And that said, once you do want to move on past the kit lens, it's best to get a wide-angle lens. Like I mentioned with people saying they expected me to be out taking photos of the moon, lots of friends and relatives I talk to will say, oh, I bet you've got some really big lenses to photograph the stars, but totally the opposite. You want a a wide-angle lens from somewhere from 14 to about 30 millimetre focal length, and you want one that has a wide aperture or what photographers refer to as a fast lens. You want to be able to let in as much light as you can. Now, with cameras being automatic, they have autofocus and auto-aperture and auto-everything, the most popular lenses amongst nightscape photographers are actually manual lenses. They have manual focus, most of them have manual aperture, and none of them have image stabilisation, which is something you always want to have turned off. I have lenses in the... I have a very good 14mm lens from a Korean company called Samyang, I have a 24mm, and I shoot with those two lenses more than anything else. Something else would be, you asked me about this before, is a cable release or some sort of Wi-Fi release so that you don't have to press the button of the camera to get the shot. Because as soon as you touch the camera to press the button, the camera's going to wobble. It doesn't show up so much in the the wide-angle, like 14mm shots, but the tighter the shot, the more you're going to notice that. Yeah. I actually started off just using the camera still timer, and this is what I used to do with my film SLR. That was, you get the shot set up and focused, and then you set the 10-second self-timer, press the button, back away from the camera, and by that time that 10 seconds is up, the camera stops shaking, it's nice and stable, and go from there. 
Now that said, there are plenty of cabled and wireless remotes available for all of the cameras on the market today. You can even get a few adapters that will plug into the camera and the other ends controlled from your smartphone. One thing I tend to say is don't buy the original manufacturer's cable or remote release. I use Canon cameras and Canon wants a couple of hundred dollars for their most basic remote release for their camera. Yep. Picked up reliable ones for $29 on eBay or even local camera stores in Australia carry them. You do need some way of remotely triggering it, particularly if you want to do time-lapse photos where you need a lot of shots fired off in repetition. I was talking with a chap recently who said he got out to his um, shooting location and realised he left his remote at home, so he had to sit, sit there for two hours and press the shutter button every 30 seconds. <laughs> now, one thing that I hadn't heard of until I experienced the, the um, disappointment for myself was dew heaters. Now, these are used by astronomers for their eyepieces to keep them from fogging up in cold and moist weather. And um, I found that I need them on my camera as well, particularly during winter. I had one night where I set up for a two-hour time-lapse, had everything focused properly, batteries charged, memory card was empty, set the camera going, went off to my car for a sleep, and when I got up two hours later, the lens had fogged over and my shots were ruined. Now, this was actually in January, which is summer, of course, for us in Australia, but when you're living somewhere humid, even in the wee small hours, the humidity can affect the lens. So some people just use heat packs that you can buy from a pharmacy or a camping store. They're a chemical pack, and you squeeze them around, and they'll generate heat. I prefer using some strip heaters, which are a Velcro strip that have little resistors in them. They Velcro around the lens, plug them into a battery, and they'll keep your lens from fogging up quite well. That's the main things apart from the camera itself. There's always something more to add, like sliders or you know panoramic or sorry uh, rotating heads that will let you track the camera across the horizons as shooting. But these are the basics, I think, that I've covered there. Fantastic, Doug. Now you mentioned focusing earlier, and focusing can be an issue. Do you turn mm. off autofocus? How do you focus at night when you're out yeah. in the middle of nowhere? It, absolutely, you turn off autofocus, and that's one thing less to remember with the manual focus lens is, is that you don't have to remember, did I turn off autofocus or not? But yeah, you don't want the camera hunting, trying to focus on something. It's not going to do it. If you're lucky and the moon's out, you'll be able to autofocus on that. But for the stars, no, you must definitely turn that off. Another thing to turn off is any optical stabilisation that your lens might have, because that you know, has microscopic movements that happen in the camera's lens when it's trying to stabilise the photo, that can cause the tripod to shake. And so the camera then responds to the shake of the tripod by trying to stabilise the shot more. And you end up with a shot which had little streaks of light rather than dots. Uh, every DSLR and, then, and certainly every mirrorless camera has a, an LCD screen where you can preview your shots and you can... I mean, you can look at them after you've shot them, but you use it to set up the shot. My cameras still have the prism and the mirror, so I use the optical viewfinder built into the camera to compose the shot, but I'm too old now to be able to use that for focus. So that's when I then use the LCD on the back of the camera to focus. 
Your Most mind. of them have Zoom functions, and I zoom up to 10 times to be able to focus. Fortunately, my eyes are at the point now where I carry a, a photographer's loop around my neck on a string, and I hear through that at the already 10 times magnified image on the back of my screen to focus. Now, a lot of uh, tutorials that will tell you, and, and certainly I used to do this myself too, point your camera at a bright star and use that to focus on. But I found that it's the faint stars that are more effective, at least for me. Sometimes a, a bright star, I, my camera might get a bit overwhelmed with the image and it doesn't give sharp edges. But I find that if there are fainter stars in the image, they'll only come into view when the camera's actually properly focused. Often you can't see them at all until you focus them, and then suddenly they pop into your field of view. Yeah, that works for me. Other people do it in other ways, but yeah, definitely turn off the autofocus and use the live view screen on your camera. That's fantastic, Doug. Now, your photography is famous for the additional interest that you add. So location, location, location. How do we decide where to do a night shoot and about adding that lighting to add interest to your shot. Sure. Yeah, now, I mentioned when I, I went down the south coast in 2014 and I used this church in the shot. And that was one of the first times I'd done any astrophotography with my digital camera. When I look back, I used to shoot in the film days. A lot of it was just constellations in the middle of a dark sky. And it was the morning I was leaving to go on this trip in 2014, I was reading an article online by a legendary nightscape photographer from the US named Mike Taylor. And Mike said in this interview that to, to be a good nightscape photographer, you need to be a good or a decent landscape photographer. And he said, you need to know how to compose a photograph, how to have points of interest in the photo, apart from the shiny bright stars. And it was a very fortunate thing that I read that article because I was headed down there to go and shoot the kind of stuff I used to do on film as a kid. So I found this church and I managed to line it up so that the Milky Way was over it. And indeed, the, the photograph from 2015 that I placed in the competition in Paris, that was of another church. There's a lovely sandstone church down the coast at a place called Bedella. And I managed to position the shot so the Milky Way was above that. So that's a long answer to your short question, but the first thing about location is somewhere with some interesting foreground objects. If you're somebody that lives where there are windmills or in, I know in northern Victoria you have those marvellous silos that already have paintings on the side of them. I've seen wonderful nightscape shots with those featured. Interesting trees. I love featuring dead trees in my photos because there's something of the the earth and the sky in both of them. Uh, interesting structures, it might be uh, a TV tower that the moon's setting behind or something like that. We're always looking for places of interest. Unfortunately, there's no register of windmills. I wish there were because I often pour over things on Google Earth, zooming in, trying to see if there's a, a windmill on the property. And I've done a few shots with silos and I think I've done my share of churches, but I'm always looking for something there. And of course, the key thing is it's got to be somewhere dark. So what I suggest to people is, even if you don't think you're ready to go out and shoot winning nightscape photos, just go out at night and take photographs anyway of the sky so that you can see what the light pollution's like in the area. 
I've shot some photos, again, harking back to, to Turos. I mean, I've been holidaying there for 40 years, so I love the place. But I shot a photo there a few years back. It was in summer, and Orion was, it was late at night, and Orion was starting to fall down the western sky. When I looked at the photo on my computer the next day, I could see a yellow glow on the horizon. And I looked at a map, and it was actually Canberra, and it was 120 kilometres line of sight Canberra but I was picking up the light pollution from it in that shot. So definitely go out and take some shots. They don't have to be good. They don't even have to be in focus just to work out if there's light pollution in the area. That's amazing, Doug. And in terms of finding windmills, you might want to look at CFA maps because all the CFA maps we've got for our region here, they show all the dams and that's where all the windmills tend to be next to a dams. That might be a tip That's for good. finding more windmills. Just check out the CFA maps. Well, thank you for that. It's nice to be receiving while I'm giving out information. See, I love that. I'm always learning. <laughs> I've told my children that if I ever get to a point where I say that I don't think I need to learn anymore, they're allowed to hit me or bury me, whichever comes first. <laughs> uh, good advice, but I don't think I'll try that with mine. Uh, now... What's the best way to get the correct exposure, to get that nice dark background sight, to get the best exposure time, to get the best ISO range, and some people use the 500 rule? What is the best way to get that so your photo's not under or overexposed? Sure. Well, the, the good old trial and error method has to be the best. And uh, one of the things you'd asked me about before the interview was about bracketing the shots. And bracketing occurs in all kinds of photography, and that's where you'll take a number of photos of the same scene, but you vary your settings as you do so. Now, that way you can look at what's worked and what hasn't. There are plenty of websites, plenty of online tutorials, where people will recommend how long an exposure you use for which lens. So typically with a a 14 millimeter lens on my camera, I'll shoot somewhere between 20 to 30 seconds. That lets enough light into the camera, particularly from the stars, but you don't see any or much trailing of the stars due to the Earth's rotation. Yep. Uh, that bracket between 20 and 30, I arrived at by reading what other photographers do, but also by just taking a lot of shots myself and working it out. There is the what's called the, the, the rule of 500 or the 500 rule that a lot of astrophotographers use. And that's where to determine the length of the photo, you take the focal length of the lens that you're using in millimeters and you divide that by 500. So if you're using, say, if you had a 100 millimeter lens, which is quite a long focal length for this kind of stuff, but it's simple math, you would only use a five second exposure at the most. If you're shooting with a, a 24 millimeter lens, which is close enough to 25, you would then say 500 divided by 25 and come out with a 20 second exposure. Yep. I actually use what's called the 400 rule, and that's that you take the number divided by 400, and that means you tend to use a shorter exposure time than you would with the 500 rule, but I found I get much less trailing in the stars using that. In the 14mm lens, it doesn't really matter because 
it's such a wide angle that anywhere up to even 40 seconds, you often won't see any trailing of the I like to push things a bit, and I use a 50 millimeter lens on my camera from time to time without any tracking of the sky. And so if I say 400 divided by 50, that gives me a maximum of eight seconds I can shoot for. In terms of the sensitivity of the camera, which is referred to as the ISO of the shot, most astrophotography that I've done, and indeed the, the people I respect and admire online, they usually shoot from 3,200 ISO up to 12,800. But 6,400 tends to be the sweet spot. There are other methods of determining the exposure length and the ISO. Uh, Aaron Priest, who's a, a wonderful nightscape photographer from the US, has been posting quite a bit of info online. He has tables of the various cameras available and their lenses and what the best focal length, exposure time, and ISO settings are for those. So you can always do the bracketing where you go, okay, I'll shoot this one for 20 seconds, this one for 25, this one for 30, or keep the exposure time the same and just bracket the ISO and change that. It's quite a contrast. I think back when I was shooting film in my teen years, I used to stump up my money to buy some fast, in inverted commas, photographic film, which was known as Kodak Tri-X, and it had an ISO of 400, which we thought was a fast film. And now I regularly shoot at 6400. I did some shots Friday night shooting at 12,800. Sony's cameras, and indeed Canons and Nikons now are catching up, they can shoot at ISOs of 256,000, 512,000. Now, there's a bit of noise there, but they're getting a lot better at it. Fantastic. We've now got enough information from you to go out there and take some decent shots. Can you tell us about your biggest mistake and your proudest achievement? Well, apart from Paris. Sure. Well, I think my biggest mistake was when I bought a new lens before that trip I talked about in 2014, going down the coast to shoot that church, I'd only taken delivery of the lens a few days before. And this was one of the Korean-made manual focus lenses. Now, I'd always expected and been taught that when you line up the focusing ring on your camera to the infinity mark, that the camera's set to infinity and will <laughs> focus properly on stars. So I went out and shot a whole night's worth of photographs. And the next night, it was a Friday night and a Saturday night, and I was looking at them, and instead of stars, little points of light, I had fuzzy balls in a lot of the photographs. And that's when I learned that the infinity point on your lens isn't necessarily the infinity point of the lens. <laughs> and there's a few of us online joke about uh, infinity lotto, where... Uh, we'll have the same lens and then you compare to see where your infinity mark is. I have a lens where the infinity point of the lens actually lines up with the three-meter focus mark on the barrel of the lens. Uh, <laughs> usually the, cheap, the cheaper the lens, the less consistent they are between models. But I spent all that time talking about focusing manually and uh, I know that from bitter experience that it's worth it. <laughs> I've had exactly the same experience, Doug. Yes, that's right. The old infinity lotto. It's something I don't want to be a winner at, that's for sure. <laughs> Proudest achievement, if I can sort of have two that blend together, was I, I had an Instagram account a few years back just for general personal things, and my eldest daughter 
texted me one day when she was between lectures at uni and said, oh, you, I've been thinking you should set up an Instagram account just for your nightscape photography. And I'd been toying with the name Nightscapades, which is what I'm known as on most social media, and it's, you know, escapades at night. And I kicked it off, and two years later to the day, I had 20,000 followers. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was a good achievement. But along the way, the thing that kept me going was, I mean, it's nice getting compliments from people saying, hey, that's a great photo. But it was when people would say, oh, you know what? I tried this for myself last night and I was amazed. Or you have inspired me to get out and do this for myself. That's my proudest achievement. And it was just today when I, I posted a photo of the large Magellanic Cloud, someone from overseas who can't see the Magellanic Clouds where it is said, this is a photo I'm going to look at when I'm feeling down and I need a happy place to go to. And I thought, wow, that, that is a proud achievement for me. I love doing that. I could, I could lose all my followers or most of them, but provided I was still inspiring someone, I'd be happy with that. And we sincerely hope that this episode does exactly the same thing, Doug. Now, you mentioned earlier about challenge. Would you like to set a challenge uh, for our listeners, an achievable challenge for listeners who might be, first of all, who might be a first-timer? And then what sort of challenge would you set for someone who's a more experienced nightscaper? Yeah, okay. I, I saw that when you sent me the, the uh, idea of what we're going to be talking about. I think for a first-timer, it would be go out and shoot a great shot of the Milky Way just with the equipment you have. The kit lens that comes with the camera, a basic tripod, practice enough with your camera in the daylight to know what to do and go out and, and shoot a photo that you're happy with and that you feel that you could show someone else to and they would say, wow. Now that might be a bit nebulous, excuse the pun, but that's how I learned. It was knowing my equipment well enough to go out and just give it a try with what I had. But the more experienced nightscaper, um, there's so many things that, that I could set a challenge for, but one thing I've been pushing myself with lately is to get some faint objects that are hard to photograph, as I mentioned before, the, the Andromeda galaxy. It, you know, it's really high above the horizon in the places I shoot, but I'm trying more and more to get some decent photos of that that I could even blow up. Or to shoot something you've never shot before. I you know, often will go out, take a photo of the Milky Way core and think, okay, I'm happy with that, and then come back and go, well... Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of those, something different. So the more experienced people look at photos that you think, wow, I could never shoot that, and then go out and shoot it. <laughs> you, know, you can't challenge yourself with something you've already done. You've got to challenge yourself with something you don't think you could do. Fantastic, Doug. Now, I've seen your nightscapes on quite a few places in the digital world. Could you tell our listeners where you reckon, where's the best place to find your nightscapes on the interwebs? Sure, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. Nice having such a forum to do so. The place I post to the most, and it was because of the success I had, is on Instagram. Now, I know it's tiny on a mobile phone, but it's been a consistently rewarding place for me. So on Instagram, I'm known as Nightscapades. 
It's the word night with escapade straight after it. You can look at Instagram on a PC or on a tablet, so you're not limited to squinting at the phone. And as I say, that's the place I post to most commonly. I try to post once a day. I rarely get it. But that's, yeah, that's it for me for the most of it. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a page called Nightscapade. So if you just look for that in the Facebook search bar, you'll find it there. I tend to post there as regularly as I do on Instagram. I have a website, nightscapade.com, but being self-employed, doing other things, and also having a family and being driven to get out and actually photograph things at night, I haven't actually updated that for a couple of years. So um, that's a bit of an embarrassment. But I, I mainly work Instagram. And a wonderful group on in Facebook, which is where you and I, I think, first got to know each other, Brendan, is the Nightscape Photographers Australia group. It's a closed group that you can apply to join. We just kicked over the benchmark or the uh, landmark of 6,500 members over the last weekend. The thing I like the most about that group is there's so much encouragement on there. There's a great number of people that share their images and... I love seeing what other people come up with because they're in places that I'm not. They're in they've got gear that I don't have and they see things in the sky that just aren't there when I go and look. So look for me by name, Doug Ingram's there on the Nightscape Photographers Australia group or indeed just Google Nightscapades and see what you come up with. Fantastic. And it's always great to be part of a supportive community. Absolutely. I've learned so much and felt so encouraged by the people on the, the groups, particularly the Nightscape Photographers Australia group. Okay, Doug, look, we'll get you back in a few months in perhaps January or February next year when our night skies are full of dust and heat haze and tremors and turbulence. And we'll get you to tell us about post-production, about stacking, printing, publishing, and all of that information, people have had quite a, a bit of time to go and do some experiments and try out your challenges. So we'll talk again in a couple of months. Thank you so much, Doug Ingram. Dust off your DSLRs, folks. Indeed. And get out there and click away. Excellent. See ya and thanks, Doug. Thank you, Brendan. Cheers, mate. That's great. Our next episode is on Friday the 25th of January when we're talking with Glenn Nagel from the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex run by NASA and the CSIRO. See you then. Radio Wave.